0: You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers, and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our earth rights. Welcome, listeners, to the 500th Renegade Economist show. And who better to have on board than Fred Harrison, our leading author? Uh, In the past, he's written books such as The Power of the Land, way back in the 1980s, right through to of recent, Beyond Brexit, and As Evil Does. Fred Harrison, great to have you on the show. Uh, What sort of rent-seeking has been on your radar of recent?
1: Well, I think the world is in a, um, can I call it a death spiral? Does that sound um, too... uh, appalling because we face an existential crisis. The world does, not just Europe, not just the UK. Uh, We're in a global situation where humanity's future is now at stake. It's an existential crisis. And unless we can somehow alert the world to the seriousness of the crisis facing humanity, I fear for the worst. Uh, We had Stephen Hawking uh, recently claiming that humanity had to get off Earth and go to live on planet Moon or Mars because that's the only way to survive, Uh, and he gives us 40 or 50 years to do it. Well, I think that's uh, a grim prospect uh, and an exaggeration, but the importance of his um, prediction is that it tells us that the experts in our society have given up on humanity. Uh, They don't see a solution to all the crises facing every region of the world. Uh, And so they now fancifully talk about having to create colonies on the moon for humanity to survive. And that's the crisis that we really need to tackle, because we could solve our problems, but there's no discussion among the experts, let alone the politicians, on how to do that.
0: Fred, one of your great passions has been delving into the language, trying to decipher uh, the terminology and where it's gone wrong in terms of confusing the everyday person. And in the UK, there's been a lot of talk about the need for capturing the rising value of the earth, of location, location, but they always seem to mangle it. And the term that uh, really struck home for me was the tax stamp duty. Now, that is a combination of two different taxes. The land tax is a yearly payment, which smooths out the flows, stops the ebbs and flows of of transactions in real estate, whereas uh, a stamp duty does the opposite. It imposes these barriers, imposes uh, financial penalties for turnover, so it, it halts the market from turning over. And so the vested interests are mean doing all they can to confuse the everyday person.
1: That's correct. We live in a world where anything goes except any attempt to get at, even to discuss the source of power in society. The the one source of power is control over the rents. And the people who are the main beneficiaries of that culture Uh, as I say, we will tolerate any kind of palliative act to try and mitigate the pain that arises from our kind of society, except that they won't allow a discussion about the strategies that could actually er erase our problems. So, uh, yes, in the last general election in June, two political parties had in their manifestos a very weak reference to the land value tax. Well, the media went into a feeding frenzy uh, because, uh, as you point out, uh, this is then translated into uh, a garden tax or a dementia tax, uh, and that puts people off. So there is no discussion, uh, constructive discussion, on how we would all be better off if only we restructured the tax regime, which is so easy to do but which would have enormous benefits in all realms of life, uh, environmental, social, personal, uh, and yet uh, we don't even get a constructive discussion. And yes, one of the problems is the language which uh, people who advocate this fiscal change use. They call it the land value tax. Uh, Well, that's bound to put people off because who wants another tax? Uh, And in any event, it's a misleading concept. It's not a tax. It's simply a payment for the benefits received. And when we go into a supermarket, we don't pay a tax when we go to the till and uh, check out our goods. We pay for the goods that we want. Uh, But they don't call it a tax. And yet uh, advocates uh, like people who I've worked with for well, generations now, continue to call it a tax instead of any other word. And and that's self-defeating. So uh, one of the big objectives now is to help people who are advocates of tax reform to stop using the emotive and, and seriously misleading words like tax and to find other ways of articulating what needs to be done so that uh, people can instantly recognise the wisdom of tax reform and provide the mandate, the democratic mandate, for
0: change. Fred, that is a huge one, isn't it? Uh, Grasping with the exact terminology we need because for so long we've been trying to find that zinger, that... uh, people can hear and identify with immediately as uh, the cause of so many of these problems, getting right to the root of things. uh, What have been some of the terms you've been interested in uh, to to help redefine this language? One I've seen is uh, a location fee, in a way reflecting the the benefits that a landholder receives by uh, having a fence around a part of this dear earth. What terminology has uh, been inspiring you of recent?
1: Well, I don't have any one uh, term that I prefer. Uh, at this point, uh, we're into or what ought to be an experimental phase of discussing uh, the alternatives. But they really do boil down to one or two uh, psychologically important concepts, like telling people, look, We're not proposing that you should pay a tax. In fact, we're going to eliminate the bad taxes. We think you should just pay for the benefits you receive. Well, inviting people to pay for the benefits they receive is an idea that they would immediately empathize with. It's not something that would turn them off. They would say, well, yeah, of course we should pay for the benefits we receive. Well, Now we can talk about the terminology of what we call such a charge, but the important thing is we are proposing to get rid of bad taxes uh, and inviting people to become responsible citizens. So one of the things I'm uh, going to stress in the book that I'm currently working on is the need for responsibility. You see, we live in a society where everybody has now been schooled into thinking that they have rights. So when a problem arises, people automatically, the default position is government should step in and solve my problem. I have a human right to this, that or the other. Uh, No discussion about the responsibility that each of us has to solving our problems and responsibilities towards each other. So this human rights culture has been very damaging to the welfare of people at large, particularly the low-income people who have, as I say, been schooled into thinking that it's the government's fault because they don't spend enough money to help me, a low-income family, um, enjoy greater social mobility, for example. This concept of requiring people to acknowledge their responsibilities then tracks back to the question of how you pay for public services. If you want a public service, don't expect the government to supply it to you. You owe the money, the cost of supplying that service, because the money doesn't come from anywhere else other than you, the person who wants to benefit from that service. So the big challenge is to uh, rearrange the discourse so that people acknowledge their personal responsibilities to pay for the services that they receive. And now we're talking a different kind of narrative, a different language, and people would empathize with that, particularly as they will be constantly aware that things like income taxes should be abolished. There should be no income tax. Or, Uh, taxes on people's consumption, or uh, the profits from their enterprises. Instead, they should just pay for the benefits they receive. Well, that's a narrative that I suspect a lot of people would actually empathize with. And it's a a million light years away from telling people, look, we think your problems would be solved if we have a land value tax. So, um, It's looking for a different kind of story to tell when proposing a shift in the fiscal system.
0: I like that. Responsibilities. That's what we need. That's pretty much the inverse of what you've been writing about in the traumatised society and as Evil does with uh, this concern around the culture of cheating and this statecraft of greed that so many people fall into and when you see the one percent is paying barely any tax uh, the everyday person uh, is is feeling like they're being ripped off and they're trying to join that game as well to avoid paying their fair share
1: yes that's absolutely right and and it all does ultimately come back to this notion of responsibility Uh, which changes the way we perceive the world and uh, the language that we would use. It raises questions, of course. Uh, People automatically think that uh, we should protect low-income people. Well, low-income people actually don't want to be protected. They just want the freedom to enjoy the lives that they could get if they were free to work and generate the revenue that they need. And at at the moment they are not free. But that discussion doesn't happen. So we hide behind the need for welfare, the welfare state, uh, and the need for government to spend money to help people who are deprived. And we stop thinking about um, the fact that people do not want to be dependent on the state. Uh, And so when, as you say, we have corporations that are actually the biggest claimants of welfare in the world, they are subsidized to a huge extent. That's where we should be discussing uh, the the relevant issues, not, oh, they should pay their fair tax. This concept of um, Amazon or Apple paying a fair share of their tax is almost meaningless. What what does the word fair mean? What is fair? All we should be asking them to do is to pay for what they get. And if it turns out that they end up paying more than they do now for what they get, well, that's exactly what we need to achieve. But at the moment, they're they're laughing all the way to the bank because the language of, for example, taxing wealth, what does that mean? It means that uh, the lobbyists have a field day defining what is wealth, what is a fair tax and they run rings around people but if you simply say look you just got to pay for what you're receiving it turns out that the big multinational corporations would end up paying a huge amount more uh, to the public purse than they are at the present time and if those payments were anchored to things like the location that they occupy or the radio spectrum that they use to conduct their um, internet uh, sales transactions, they would end up to be paying a lot more into the public purse. So, it, again, it comes back to some kind of all-encompassing narrative that changes uh, the way people perceive the world and shifts the, the distribution of power in favour of equality for everybody, in effect.
0: With the way... Politicians are pretty well hired guns for uh, this world of lobbyocracy we live within. Uh, Democracy barely counts anymore. Uh, People are are struggling to grasp which way to turn uh, with the democratic process unravelling itself and austerity economics unable to deal with the problems we have today. So, Fred, where do we go?
1: It becomes possible if enough people will start talking in terms of meeting uh, personal uh, and corporate responsibilities uh, in the realm of finance. Um, The problem is that even the left-wing politicians are stuck with uh, the old language of socialism and Marxism, uh, and that's their comfort zone, and uh, they are reluctant to shift the way they discuss the world's problems because that begins to acknowledge that the free market is actually a good thing. It's not the enemy of the people in the way that Marxists view it, uh, but the free market isn't actually free to deliver what people want because of the rent-seeking culture that compromises the way the market works. So it's everybody on both the left and the right that needs to rethink their philosophy if we're going to make any substantial change. And the time scale is running short because, as I say, uh, we, the world faces an existential crisis. Um, there is paralysis in governments, particularly in the West, over policy. They're stuck with this zero or low uh, negative interest rates. They fear what would happen if they started to raise interest rates to the long run average. Uh, the people are reacting with what's called populism, increasingly uh, electing politicians who are charismatic but really don't have the solutions to their problems. So we are heading for. In the next five years, a huge disappointment as people realize that people like Trump in America, Macron in France, simply don't have the solutions to the problems. Where are people going to turn to then? Uh, There will be utter chaos, and um, I fear for what's going to happen, unless people have the hope of seeing that there is a constructive uh, way forward to solving their problems. And
0: is that gonna like be possible the in the UK reform, with the House of Landlords the only in, the upper house? Today in
1: the world who have the solution to all the major problems? So the responsibility on us is huge.
0: You're on Three CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald, celebrating five hundred shows with Fred Harrison, our leading author from ShareTheRents.org. That's ShareTheRents.org. You'll see uh, 10 treaties on that website uh, that sums up a lot of what we're talking about today. But, Fred, uh, over to uh, the Brexit story. Uh, Where is that sitting? Is there going to be a hard exit? Uh, How's Theresa May navigating the waters? Uh,
1: At the moment, it is a chaotic situation where, for instance, the... The Conservative government of Theresa May is riven with uh, dissension. There are those who want a soft Brexit, meaning we retain close links with the European Union. There are those who want a hard Brexit. Uh, and, and these notions are all ambivalent. They indicate people's anxieties because there's no uh, comprehension of how things could work after the UK has left um, The European Union. And that's the fault of Theresa May, uh, who raised expectations that actually we would have a fairer society, a more inclusive society, uh, up until the general election. And then she uh, flinched uh, and backtracked. So now people simply don't know what is going to happen, and they're frightened. And that's why Uh, The politicians need to get their act together. They need to find a way of portraying the future that raises people's hopes. Because at the moment, the the politicians who thrive on chaos, who raise doubts in people's minds, are the ones that are making the running. And so uh, there's despair, frankly, in the UK over what is happening. The May government is weakened very seriously, uh, and the population at large is confused. Uh, In other words, the experts who ought to be offering uh, reassurance that there is a plan of action that would lead to a prosperous Britain after Brexit are simply not up to the job. So part of our problem is with the experts who consistently make statements which are falsified, and that's because they're working with a model of the world that is so defective that they can't produce uh, predictions that are are reliable. And so when the people are faced with uh, the unreliability of the experts who get all the uh, time on TV and in the newspapers, of course, they then what, what does the ordinary person do except look for extremists to, to uh, help save the world? And so in Europe, which is itself in turmoil, doesn't know which way they turn, frankly, we have more nutcases offering themselves as capable of um, uh, producing solutions and the people uh, are increasingly tempted to support them. Well, in the 1930s, which is what we've now got, we're effectively back to the 1930s, in the end it was a nutcase who came to power uh, with the determination to make the trains run on time, who thought that he could solve his problems with concentration camps. And we know what the outcome was. And I fear that we are now heading very rapidly to that kind of scenario.
0: And the effects have just been papered over uh, again and again and again with uh, uh, poor policy alternatives that... uh, uh are ignoring the real issue of monopoly rents that are devouring society and uh, putting more and more pressure on the social welfare blanket, remembering that uh, our independence, our ability to look after ourselves was once possible when we had access to the commons. Uh, Sure, there's uh, little elements such as community gardens growing and playing an important role in communities, but still not enough people actually know how to put the remote control down and go and get involved in their community.
1: I'm particularly concerned now that when the next recession happens, the big one, the next big one, which will be within the next 10 years, young middle-class people who have been disenfranchised economically today with their living standards being eroded, not being able to get married because they can't afford homes, those young people will be leading a charge that won't be as benign as the Occupy movement uh, that sprang up after 2008, which settled for camping on the pavement. Basically, that was all that they were able to do, and that was no threat to the power structure at all. But the young, intellectual, middle-class activists will not tolerate that kind of uh, response next time. And when, when you get young and intelligent middle class people offering themselves as leaders to movements, mass movements, we know from history that they end up leading uh, an attack on the system that more often than not turns violent. Uh, and one can understand the the frustration of those people. So we need to work very fast. The window of opportunity is rapidly closing. And as I say, I think we've got less than 10 years now in which to uh, create a new narrative of hope uh, that helps people to constructively build out of the mess that we're
0: now in. Well, there have been some positives to come out of the Occupy movement, Your work in Spain seems to be having positive effects with the Podemos party which came out of the 17M movement which uh, many see as inspiring the Occupy movement. So uh, tell us a little bit about Spain.
1: Uh, Well, yes, but Spain is also a classic case study of how ultimately the experts, the economists who have influence as advisors to politicians prefer to retreat to their comfort zones. Uh, They're not willing to risk their personal reputations to acknowledge that there is only one solution and that is to redesign the tax regime so that uh, the the bottlenecks in the social system can be broken open. So in Spain we have a left-wing group party called Podemos which attracted the support of people who have been disenfranchised. But it's been a disappointment, frankly, because although they have economists in their ranks who acknowledge the need to look at the land question and the rent question closely, for the the most part, the leaders are uh, retaining power by continuing to... Uh, flirt with uh, the left-wing socialist dogmas, and as a result of that, the right-wing is continuing to hang on to power, even though uh, they do so as a minority government. So now what we have in Spain is effectively a hung parliament, a politics where neither the left nor the right are in control, and that's a similar situation to the UK now, Uh, because everybody is paralyzed by fear, by not wanting to take risks. So uh, although we are making progress in uh, sharing our thoughts uh, in Spain, we do need some dramatic uh, event to turn things around so that uh, to give courage to the politicians who have it in their hands to make the difference for people. In the end, it's going to take a general conversation, a democratic conversation that is informed, that enables people to work out what is in their best interests. Uh, And and frankly, I don't know what what that event uh, is is likely to uh, be that makes the breakthrough, that enables people to engage in a sensible, a rational, a cool conversation of the kind that leads to a democratic mandate for constructive change.
0: Well, Fred Harrison, let's hope that point is not too far away and hopefully it will be your next book. That is the aha moment, awakening uh, those who are trying to reform uh, society into recognising we all need to be tax geeks to uh, really tax away these easy profits that monopolists are making, whether it's in land, in mining, uh, or in uh, soon uh, asteroid mining in outer space. It's all up for ransom at the moment, and that's what we need to address. So uh, thanks very much for joining us here on our 500th show. Fred Harrison from ShareTheRents.org. ShareTheRents.org.
1: Thanks, Carl, and uh, my best wishes from London to all you guys in Australia.
0: Always good to have Fred on the show, one of the wise heads uh, amongst the movement. Usually we delve back into history, and uh, you know that's why I love this uh, story, because we can talk to the right wing about lower taxes. We can talk to the left about self-funding infrastructure and affordable housing, Whilst uh, uh, basing this on strong historical stories such as uh, the origins of the game of Monopoly, originally called the Landlord's Game, to teach people about the dangers of uh, real estate speculation. Of course, the rights got bought out and it got flipped on its head. In this world of doublespeak, you know the story. All right, my name is Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks for supporting us here on 3CR's Beloved Airwaves. Check out the show notes at earthsharing.org.au. And this time next week, I will be a farmer. We will have moved up to Drummond, just north of Kiton. Till then.